This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Today, our topic is Christian metaphysics, epistemology, and apologetics, conversation between Chris Bolt and Craig Carter. This is part two of the conversation uh, with these men, so I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode, which was part one. Part one leaves off where we start today. So with that said, we will start part two of this episode. Dr. Bolt, you can go ahead and respond or add do anything or clarify yes. anything? Yes, I need to clarify. Uh, that was perfect. <laughs> that was that was very well stated, and uh, and I agree wholeheartedly. And so, here I think is where where we are having a disconnect, uh, but not a disagreement. And it's it's my fault. Uh, I've been unclear, right? So I do believe that Hume's account of causation is problematic. Okay. Uh, I believe that Kant's account is problematic. Uh, Hume was approaching this as a passive observer where he's just going off of experience. And yes, we experience event A and, experience, and we experience event B over and over again. And they're conjoined. But Hume says, but we don't have any rational you know, reason for saying that the one causes the other. Whereas Kant comes along and says, well, you know, I've been awakened from my dogmatic slumber. Uh, just what Dr. Carter just said. You know, if Hume is right, then science is completely undermined. It's not just religion or natural religion. It's it's basically the whole of human knowledge that's undermined uh, by these uh, these arguments. And so Kant says, well, let's let's be active in this. Right. We bring these categories of experience to our um, experience. Uh, I do believe that Hume would assume that there's a cause. I think that's, you know, a, a strong underlying premise of all science. We're looking for. Uh, why things come about. We're looking for causes. But I think that Hume attributes this to custom. Now, I don't agree with Hume on this, but he attributes that to custom, and he questions the rational basis that we have to draw general and predictive, particular predictive inferences uh, with regard to uh, induction. And so, like, if the Golden Globe suddenly appeared in front of Hume, he, he may very well be shocked and surprised not because he has any rational reason for it, according to his argument, but simply because it's opposed to his general custom, right? His general uh, habits of thought. And so I take that to be Hume's issue here. It's not that we don't expect the future to resemble the past. It's that we have no rational basis for believing that. Now, I think we agree because you, you started your case off in a very strong way, the very way that I would argue no, I, I think that we are, uh, I don't want to say rationally justified per se, but I guess that's the right language, uh, but we're rationally warranted at, at the least 
in drawing these general and uh, particular predictive inferences, because we do believe in a God who, who maintains this regularity in nature through divine providence. But I would submit to you that that's a version of a transcendental argument that's typically used apart from uh, the natural theological arguments and the classical uh, proofs for the existence of God. And so I don't think that Hume's right. I think he's not skeptical enough. You're right. When he approaches religion with these objections, uh, what Hume, and really, let's just be honest here, what the militant atheists and others who are following Hume and quoting him as their guy, what they need to do is realize Hume is not, if he's successful, he's not just undermining natural theology. No, he's undermined virtually all human knowledge itself. And so the skeptic winds up in self-defeating skepticism or subjectivism as opposed to the Christian who comes to these things with the presupposition that God exists and hence is able to account for things like logic and science and morality, which I do agree with you as well. And you made this point. Those three are connected, as is natural theology, right? Remember, I haven't rejected the use of natural theology in a dogmatic sense. It's just that I come to natural theology with the presupposition of the God of the Bible versus approaching it from another uh, epistemology like, for example, Hume's radical empiricism, which I think is a, a serious failure, as he himself demonstrates. Yeah, can I just jump in there with one more thing? And that is that a lot of people have a narrative, a lot, uh, there's a widespread narrative today that says that that postmodernism is a helpful correction against Enlightenment foundationalism and modernity, and that Christians should uh, go along with this. Um, I would propose a different narrative. Um, we, we need to think about how where we sit in history and where we where how how we got to this point and where where we are. I see postmodern relativism and skepticism and nihilism as the inevitable fruit of modern philosophy from the beginning. The, the roots of, of Derrida or the roots of Nietzsche are in Descartes. Uh, modern philosophy, insofar as it uh, does not want to begin with, with uh, the rational, with, with belief in God, but, but begins with human autonomy and human experience, that is the decisive move that uh, that really you can trace it all the way through modern philosophy from Descartes to Hume, and then it results in Kant, and then from there comes the the, the skepticism and relativism. So, so it's modernity as a whole that is the problem. Modernity as a whole is anti-Christian. It's a it's a pathology that has developed intellectually in our culture because of the rejection of the God of the Bible, the rejection of Christian truth, and and so. It's modernity that is the problem. And the problem is not that modernity is incompatible with Christianity. Well, that's a problem for sure. But my, my burden is to say, you know, it, it, I want to say to people who are not Christians today, you know, take Richard Dawkins, for example. Richard Dawkins is very happy with Hume because Hume's scientism um, is a weapon that he wields against Christianity. What Richard Dawkins does not seem to realize is that Hume undermines science as much as he undermines Christianity. And so when, when Richard Dawkins then sees the, the radical post 
neo-Marxists and postmodernists uh, turning uh, science into a matter of, uh, it's a political ideology to be used to advance social and economic liberation. And truth, smooth, who cares about truth? All we care about is whether a certain ideology um, has a certain positive effect, positive defined as advancing what we see as the program of human liberation. Uh, Dawkins is horrified by this ideological use of science, by the reduction of science to just being an ideology used to advance uh, what we think is is uh, a good social program. He wants to say, no, science is about truth. Well, I'm sorry, but you undermined the idea that science could be about truth or that you could know truth by accepting Hume in the first place. So that that's why I want to reject modernity in a more uh, root and branch kind of way and go back to what was before modernity to recover resources that we can use to rebuild culture in the future. Guys, we have been going about an hour. Are you fine with going on? I'm fine. I want to say amen to what he just said, too. Dr. Carter, are you fine with going on? Sure, I, I, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, you're going to have to divide this into two or something. That, that's, that is fine with us. Austin can do that, but I'll go ahead and turn it back over to you, Austin. You're, you're up. Oh, well, uh, this may be uh, the beginning of our part two conversation. We'll have to see, but we do want to move the conversation forward. And uh, Dr. Carter will allow you the opportunity to do that as we ask you this question, what is metaphysical realism and why do you believe it is essential to philosophy and Christian theology? Well, in modernity, one of the things that happened <clears throat> was the point-by-point -point rejection of the whole philosophical, uh, uh, the whole metaphysics of, of the great tradition. Now, essentially what happened in the 19th century was that the um, people began to see reality as the cosmos is all that exists. In the words of Carl Sagan in his, his book, Cosmos, in the, the PBS uh, series, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. That's the, the basic article of faith that comes to be predominant in the 19th century. Uh, I call it philosophical naturalism. And philosophical naturalism is the opposite of what I call Christian Platonism. Um, what others, what you could call Nicene metaphysics, you could call it scholastic realism, you could call it metaphysical realism. But, but the, the whole idea, uh, here, here's how the two are, in, are, are opposed to each other. Metaphysical realism says that the world we experience through our five senses is part of reality. There are two parts to reality. There's the material, reality and the spiritual reality. Human beings are right on the line. Above the line, you have angels and heaven. Below the line, you have animals and, and uh, material things. Humans are right on the line because we, we're made up of soul and body. And as, as insofar as we are, have souls, we participate in the immaterial realm. And insofar as we're bodies, we participate in the material realm. Um, the idea that there is a, a, a realm uh, that is non non-material is something that Christianity, the whole Bible presupposes that it's true. But in modernity, you have a move towards philosophical naturalism. 
Well, if you, if you believe in philosophical naturalism, then you must be a nominalist. You, a nominalist is somebody who denies the existence of universals. What are universals? Well, universals are things that exist in this non-material realm, which cause things in this material realm to be what they are. So why is a horse a horse? Well, because it participates in the universal of horseness. Well, where is this universal of horseness? Well, it's not in the material world anywhere. It's in this other realm. Um, and and the, so, so basically in, a, in the Platonic tradition, the way you know anything is you know the nature of a thing. Uh, if you wanna know what the nature of a human being is, you must know what human nature is. If you want to know what the nature of a rock is, you must know what the nature of rock of the rock is. Um, in the Platonic tradition, the nature of a thing is 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 what it is and remains what it is because it participates in a universal. Christianity is very similar because Christianity says that a a the nature of a thing is created by God and it is kept in existence, preserved in existence, conserved through the doctrine of providence. And that's why things continue to be what they are. Because you think about it, we have a world of flux. Everything's changing. So why, why can we say that Jimmy Johnson is a person who remains himself when at one point he was just a few cells in his mother's body? and then he became a fetus, and then he was born in, in, as a baby, and then he only weighed 10 pounds or so. But then he grew, and he became a child, and, a, and an adolescent, and a man. And someday he's going to be 70 or 80 or 90 years old, and he's going to die and pass out of existence. He came into existence, he passed out of existence, and all the time he was existing, he was constantly changing from one stage into another. What on earth makes him one thing rather than just a series of disconnected entities that really uh, aren't one thing. Well, it's his nature. And that nature is, is what it is because it continues to exist and it's the form that makes the body what it is. That nature is a universal. Now, if we, in modernity, there is no place beyond the physical world where these universals could be and there can't be any universals. So it's very, not, it's very, it's very understandable that in the modern worldview, it has drifted into a kind of extreme evolutionary naturalism where everything is just evolving into something else. There's no real stability. There, there are no real things that, that remain what they are. Um, and, and, and really, we, we talk about liquid modernity and post-modernity. We talk about um, people um, reinventing themselves and we, we value human autonomy as the highest good. And so when a man says, I'm now a woman, wants to change into a woman, we, we see that if, from the modern worldview, that's possible because there is no essential maleness that constitutes you as a person. It's not a universal in which you participate. It's you're just an evolving thing, and what you are today may not be what you are tomorrow, and and so it's a huge issue. It's a it's a it's a completely different metaphysics. Um, and and what I what I want to say is that the older metaphysics that call it metaphysical realism, scholastic real I think scholastic realism is probably the best name for it. 
But I believe that is integrally connected to and implied by the Christian doctrine of creation such that you can't disassociate the two. In other words, in other words, as Christians, we can never accept the modern worldview, the modern, modern metaphysics. We, we can't do that. We can't ever reject realism. We can't ever embrace nominalism. We cannot embrace philosophical naturalism. We can never accept the total evolutionary worldview whereby there's no continuity or design or, or reality of things. We, what I'm saying is that Christianity implies that old, some version of that older metaphysics, and therefore we must continue to hold it even in the teeth of a culture that is determined to deny it. Um, and, and so that's what I th why I think it's important. Dr. Bolt, uh, your response? Yeah, unfortunately, we're not going to find much to disagree on here, right? What fun is, is in that? But uh, so I, I really like uh, Dr. Carter's label of Christian Platonism because it, it leaves just enough unanswered in terms of the label to uh, upset people and get them to look into it, right? But I understand what he's saying, and I, I tend to agree with what he's saying. Uh, I do believe that metaphysical realism entailed by uh, a Christian approach to everything um, is, is the basis for things like science and reasoning and, uh, and all of those different areas. And then, so I'm not arguing, for example, for a, a humane approach to Christianity or to science or anything like that. I'm not even a nominalist. Um, the, uh, but what I would say is that something like the modern or modernist project uh, would give us a basis for a type of reductio, right? Uh, against unbelieving thought that doesn't take into account these things uh, that, that Dr. Carter is talking about, which I think to be sort of a philosophical explication of, of Christian doctrine and things that are just basic to uh, Christianity. It seems to me that in pre-modern thought, we are starting with God and eventually there is this turn to the subject of knowledge that happens in the history of, of thinking and the history of philosophy uh, with someone like uh, Hume or Kant, particularly with Kant, right? So uh, by the time we get to Kant, in fact, this is something that Cornelius Van Til brings out, and I think he's been a little bit misunderstood on this point. Um, you know, Van Til seemed really excited that Kant had said some of the things that he had said, but it wasn't because Van Til was hitching his wagon to Kant. It was because in Kant, he saw the clearest example of autonomous or would-be autonomous uh, thought in uh, contradiction to Christian thought in particular. So I, I don't take it to be the case that Van Til had became, become a, a Kantian or an idealist or something like that. In fact, he explicitly wrote against it, uh, for example, in his dissertation, uh, which leads to just one uh, area maybe of clarification uh, that Dr. Carter could, could provide, actually two. So two things I would want to ask him uh, one would be, um, does he see something like the good, the true, the beautiful, or however we want to order those? Um, is that something that exists apart from God, or uh, is this something that requires God? Are they, are they found inherent to uh, the God we believe in, uh, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful? And then uh, the other question uh, would be, you know, does Dr. Carter, in sort of a a Schaeferian sense, the way that Francis Schaeffer, I think, approached things. Does he see 
the solution to the modernist project and what does result from that, the postmodernist project, I think he's right in the way that he used that uh, trajectory. Does he think that um, something like the old Greek ways of thinking are the solution to that modernist project and its, and its failures? Or, or are those older Greek ways of thinking philosophically uh, in many senses, just as opposed to Christianity um, as the modernist project and, and then postmodernism and all of these other uh, crazy systems we get after that, like philosophical naturalism and logical positivism and whatnot. Dr. Carter, your response? Yeah, and, and the first one, just remind me again, the first one was what? The, the, the good, the true, the beautiful. Uh, uh, yeah. Right, the nature of the universals. Okay, uh, very quickly, there are three main theories of, of, uh, of universals. One of the, the way I outline Christian Platonism in my book is I follow Lloyd Gerson's uh, uh, his, uh, schema, where he says, you're in the, Christian Pla you're in the Platonist tradition if you agree with these five antis, you're, you're anti-nominalism, anti-materialism, uh, anti-mechanism, anti-skepticism, and anti-relativism. But there are different ways that you could be anti-nominalism. So, for example, you could be, uh, you could take Plato's own view. So Plato envisioned the forms as existing in a third realm. So there's, there's the, the, the changing world of flux, <laughs> and then there are actually forms existing somewhere on their own. And uh, there's, there are problems with this. It has to do with how the forms relate to each other and so on and so forth. But that's one view. The second view is Aristotle's view. Aristotle doesn't think the forms exist in a realm of their own. He thinks that each form uh, exists insofar as it um, forms is the form of the body of a material thing. So the, the form is inherent in the existing object. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there's a third view. And it was basically the view that was adopted in the medieval scholastics called, it's called scholastic realism. And it comes from Augustine and it's embraced by Aquinas. And it basically says that the universals are ideas in the mind of God. So they exist, but they exist in God. So I don't want to call them, uh, I don't want to identify God with the universals exactly but they are closely related to God in the sense that they are dependent on God. They are in the mind of God, meaning that they, they don't have independent existence of their own. So I don't want to set up any kind of a, um, uh, I don't want to set up any kind of, uh, of set of transcendentals, uh, universals, or anything else which have independent existence above, behind, or apart from God. God is the ultimate uh, met, uh, the ultimate source of the absolute source of all metaphysical reality. Um, there's nothing above or beyond or except for him. He, so the universals are in his mind. Okay. So, so does that, does that answer that first question, Chris? It does. That was very helpful. Thank you. Okay. Now the second question <clears throat> uh, again was, um, what, what was just say it again? Oh, let's see. What was it? Uh, oh, so would a return to something like a Greek philosophy uh, as found in perhaps Plato or Aristotle or, you know, Socrates uh, before that? I know that there are differences between those, obviously. But do you view a return to that type of thinking to be 
uh, preferable or even a solution to what you view as the modernist project and the postmodernism that stems from it? Well, I do believe that Christianity encountered Greek philosophy in the Second Temple Jewish period and in the Patristic period, and that uh, there was a fusion of thought forms that cannot be disentangled at this point in history. This is not just the Church Fathers. Uh, you can even take the, the concept of the Logos in John chapter 1. The word Logos was a big word in Greek philosophy. Uh, the Logos was used by the Stoics, for example, to mean the rational principle at the heart of reality. So the early Christians were willing to say that the Logos is identical with the word by which God spoke creation into being in Genesis 1. And the Logos um, is, uh, it does play the same role in the Christian understanding of creation as it does in Stoicism to a certain extent, because in both cases, the Logos is what what makes the world rational and ordered. But the, dip, but, the, but the thing that the Christians say that, that no Greek philosopher ever would dream of, of saying is that the, the, this Logos became flesh, that the Logos is personal. It's actually the second person of the Trinity. It's actually the Son of God, the Word. Um, and the idea that the, that the Logos would become incarnate, I mean, this was just, this is, this is just new information. There's no, there's no Greek precedent for that at all. And so if you ask me, can we do without the Greek way of thinking, it's so hard to answer because, well, do we ditch the Logos or do we continue to talk about the Logos? Um, when, we, when we talk about the... Um, uh, there are certain things that the Greeks discovered. Let's put it this way. Um, let's say that you are, uh, let's say you're a person from China and you want to develop Chinese universities. And so you're working on uh, physics and you want to have Chinese math because you want culturally appropriate Chinese math for Chinese universities. Well, can you help using the calculus, even though it was invented by a dead white guy from Cambridge? Um, like, the calculus is the calculus. There's no Chinese calculus different from the Indian calculus, different from the European calculus. Calculus is just calculus. And I think it's a mistake to identify certain true ideas or true discoveries of thought whether it's the, uh, the proof of God is the unactualized actualizer, or whether it's the, the mathematical, the Pythagorean theorem. Is the Pythagorean theorem Greek, or is it just the Pythagorean theorem that happened to be discovered by a Greek, but could have just as easily been discovered by uh, an African or by somebody from some other country? It doesn't matter who discovered it. It doesn't matter who agrees with it. It doesn't matter who doesn't agree with it. It just is true, objectively. Uh, for anybody. So I, when it comes to things like that, yes, we have to go back and re-embrace those things. And, um, and the fact that modern, that the modern project is opposed to universals or is opposed to proofs for the existence of God or is opposed to uh, certain things like the Greek idea of, of God is immutable and, and simple and, and self-existent. Well, it doesn't matter the fact that the Greeks said those things 
is is irrelevant. What what's in, the things that they said that are untrue? No, we don't want to go back and recover those. But the things that they said that were true, yes, we do want to go back and recover those. And just the fact that that the Greeks said that said it a long time ago is just no reason for for throwing it out or thinking that it's relative relative. Um, I just I just don't believe in 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 uh, cultural relativism. I just don't believe in epistemological or moral relativism. I mean, I just think that some things are true. And so my, my whole plea is, is uh, it's not about chronology. Um, I, I, I agree with C.S. Lewis that just because something's up to date doesn't mean it's better, doesn't mean it's truer. Um, truth is truth, no matter when it was discovered, by whom it was discovered, and it's true no matter who agrees with it, or who finds it inconvenient. The, it, so whatever is true uh, in ancient thought, we need to hold on to. And, I, and, and if my narrative of the history of Western thought is true, if my basic outline of it is, okay, so that the, there were some true things that the Greek philosophers were discovering in philosophy and science, that merged with the Christian doctrine of creation and it created a, a, a vibrant culture called Western Christendom that invented all kinds of amazing things from universities to hospitals to classical music to gothic cathedrals to uh, to modern mathematics and it, it brought up it brought forth modern science and and all of the all kinds of amazing and great things uh, the, the the most the most vibrant exciting creative culture in history um, do I think that that there are things that are of permanent value that must be preserved at the at the root of that explosion of creativity and knowledge absolutely yes and and uh, if modernity wishes to set its face against those things then then it's too bad for modernity because modernity will simply crumble and fall it can't possibly last if it does that and and the important thing from my perspective for christians to do um, i tweeted today on twitter i said that that the job of seminaries in the coming dark ages and, and if, if those of you that have read Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, uh, you can kind of see the, the, the final pages of that book. He, he, um, he talks about this. But I, I said seminaries should see it as part of their mission, yes, to prepare pastors to preach in churches, absolutely. But it should also be part of their mission to perform the function that was performed by the monasteries in the Dark Ages, because the Benedictine monasteries in Europe in the Dark Ages not only preserved knowledge of scripture and biblical languages and, and Christian doctrine and the creeds and all that, but it also preserved scientific and philosophical works, the best of those works from ancient Greek and Roman culture. And after the Dark Ages were finally over, those monasteries grew into universities and learning and philosophy and science flourished and Western culture leaped ahead, but it was because the church preserved that knowledge. And I do believe the same thing's going to happen again. I think that it will be the church that will preserve uh, the knowledge of truth, um, whether that truth is theological or philosophical or scientific or moral, that knowledge will be preserved in the church in some form. Uh, and, and I think that's part of our job. So if, if, that, if that vision or that understanding of where we are historically and how we relate to the past and where we're going in the future. If all that has any validity at all, then, um, then there's just no way we can um, 
sort of with a wave of the hand dismiss uh, every all kinds of true things just because they happen to have been discovered by the Greeks a long time ago. Well, Dr. Carter, uh, we do want to move the conversation forward to our last question. And uh, you have mentioned that uh, you would like to discuss analytical philosophy and analytical theology. So um, can you explain what analytical philosophy and theology are? Then we'll give uh, Dr. Bolt an opportunity to respond. Well, I wish I could, but I can't. Um, I don't know what analytical philosophy is. Maybe Dr. Volk can help us here, but here's my problem. Um, I went to talk to two of my colleagues um, a few months ago. I went into their, to the office of two philosophers to teach at my school, and they're both involved in analytical philosophy. And I said, what is analytical philosophy? And they couldn't really explain it to me. And um, I because they would, they would say certain things. Well, you know, it's characterized by careful argumentation and uh, extreme focus on the logic and the, the, the meaning of sentences and how language works and so on. And, and I said, yeah, I, I find that in Thomas Aquinas. I, I don't understand, you know, who, who's more logical with his argumentation and more detail. And so I'm not sure what analytical philosophy really is. Well, perhaps, uh, Dr. Bolt, can you help us out then as we try to move this conversation along? Of course not. Uh, no, I, I, th I think that what he just said is correct. When you read the analytic theologians um, in particular, they spend a great deal of time trying to define their own discipline. And I know some of these guys personally, and, and they'll tell you the very same thing. Uh, they, you know, they kind of laugh at, well, what is analytic uh, theology? And so the same thing for analytic philosophy, because there's not a lot of difference between those two. I think that this used to be labeled philosophical theology, right, uh, back uh, before the 90s or back in the 80s and prior to that. But um, I, I think that this does intertwine a bit, though, with um, some of the other uh, themes that Dr. Carter and I have been discussing, uh, both in the, the last segment and then this one as well. Um, because when I... It's, for example, I recently gave a paper and there was an analytic philosopher there um, who was taking issue with some of the things I was saying because he wanted to address uh, some of the difficulties or problems on a local level. Uh, and so this is kind of how I think about analytic philosophy. Uh, you think about continental philosophy as looking at the forest, whereas analytic philosophy, you're looking at the trees maybe. Uh, but I agree that continental philosophy does the same thing too. <laughs> they just use a different style of writing and thought. Um, but, it, you know, he was, he was objecting on that basis and trying to get to, well, you know, what about logic and logically looking at this localized problem? And, you know, they don't want to say things outside of that. Well, that just brings up the point of, okay, but, but why logic? Uh, what is logic? What's the nature of logic? I mean, you have to have a philosophy of logic behind the actual uh, a practice of logic, right, or method of logic, and I think that that requires us to say some things about metaphysics and metaphysical realism, and it, it puts it right back into this entire discussion we've been having about uh, Christianity and even about the, uh, the great tradition and, and classical thinking and all of this sort of thing. Uh, you can't do these things in a vacuum or you don't get anywhere. It's almost like a turn to... Um, thinking in the abstract about particular problems, uh, 
whereas we have in the modernist project to turn to the subject of knowledge, uh, both of those run into dead ends, I believe. And that was one of the things too that I was, I was trying to bring out in my previous questions to Dr. Carter, because uh, I do witness sometimes, it seems to me, folks who will push back against the modernist project or, or usually uh, they don't necessarily see postmodernism grounded in modernism, but uh, they'll push back against the postmodern project, whatever that is, and uh, they do so by appealing back to the Greeks and back to classical thought and whatnot. And, and I want to say, yeah, but there are problems there as well. That's not necessarily explicitly Christian thought with the qualifications that Dr. Carter made, which I, you know, I agree with that. In fact, uh, in my book, I was thinking about this when you mentioned the, the Logos Doctrine. Um, in my book, I, I note a term that's used by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.17, Sunestikin, where uh, Christ holds all things together. And when you study that term, you can find it in Pseudo-Aristotle, and you can find it in Plato, and both of them are using that term in the context of addressing the cosmos and the order of the cosmos. And so here comes the Apostle Paul, uh, and he's using this word and saying, it, it's Christ who holds all things together. Now, I'm not making the argument you've heard some preachers make on television, right? Or, oh, it's the, uh, you know, this element that we scientists have discovered. That's not the argument I'm making. Uh, I'm simply going back to uh, this idea that we can understand the inductive principle in terms of the providence of God, and in particular in that passage, in terms of the providence expressed by Christ uh, in virtue of him being the son of God. Uh, a real quick story. I was trained in undergrad by a philosopher who uh, is a, a scholar in the area of, of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And I came into his office one day um, and he had a kitchen table set up as his desk and he had uh, all of these different papers printed out and laid out on, on that table. Uh, and he was listening to his classical music and drinking his green tea and reading uh, Aristotle, he had been reading Aristotle in, in the Greek and whatnot, but he had, he had been reading the Bible that day in Greek. And, uh, and I asked him about what he was reading and he explained he was reading the Apostle Paul in Greek. Uh, and I, I don't know that this gentleman, uh, to my knowledge, he was not a, a believer. Uh, of course, the professors would do different things to kind of cover their own views at the school I went to. But, uh, but he looked up at me and he said, Chris, you know, he said, the Apostle Paul knew a whole lot more about the schools than what he let on, <laughs> which was an amazing statement coming from him because he was somebody who was in the position to know that. Um, and so he was struck by how erudite the Apostle Paul was in terms of his uh, understanding and articulation and, and even pushback uh, against Greek philosophy. So um, anyway, uh, yeah, I would, I would agree with the things that Dr. Carter is talking about there. And with regard to analytic philosophy, I would say we need to be careful about siloing off this one particular methodology apart from uh, a Christian understanding. I think there's probably some use for analytic philosophy, analytic theology. I appreciate many of the different arguments that were taken up by, for example, Oliver Crisp or uh, Michael Ray or, or James uh, in Anderson at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, some of these guys kind of fall into that tradition, and I think they're more clearly articulating on a localized level um, some of the various problems or questions or difficulties that are raised by confessional uh, Christian theology, but I don't, 
I don't like to see it as this continental versus analytic thing. I, I look to it more as analytic philosophy uh, kind of uh, augments and, and refines and helps out with some of the things that we approach in continental uh, philosophy and theology and, and that approach to uh, thought. Well, can I just Carter? jump in there yep. and say Go I ahead. agree with almost everything? I agree with almost everything that you just said there, Chris, and uh, uh, I think that's um, I think that's very helpful. My concern with analytical philosophy is is the concern that what I see actually happening in analytical philosophy is attempting to investigate big philosophical questions ahistorically. That's 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 what I find. Uh, disconcerting. Um, it, it's almost as if it, 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 it's almost inculcates students into a way of thinking about philosophical problems that does not acknowledge the, the history of the discussion of that problem. Uh, and, and I think that uh, if you only know modern philosophy, you don't know philosophy. This is the problem. And, and so I think the, the, um, the idea of, I mean, there's nothing wrong with analytical philosophy in what it does. It's only, only maybe something wrong in what it leaves out in the sense that it doesn't ground itself in the historical discussion of, uh, of issues. You know, if you, if you try to have a debate about universals and nominalism in, in the context of a, of a group of analytical philosophers, which is, I think, what I'm uh, maybe doing at, at EP Evangelical Philosophical Society in, uh, in the fall. Uh, the, the problem there is that the assumption is we can solve this philosophical problem without really grappling with Aristotle, Plato, and Aquinas. Uh, and, and, and I just think that's, that's not productive. Uh, I just think that we have to think about the history of the problem uh, in order to really deal with the problem. And uh, just looking at, just trying to, to, it's almost like trying to do logic, as you said, without metaphysics, without acknowledging that there are metaphysical uh, assumptions being made at every step along the way here. And, and the validity of those metaphysical assumptions is going to affect the outcome of your argument. So um, just trying to ignore them is, is not going to work. And so insofar as there's a, a named school of philosophy, whether it's analytic philosophy or something else, that thinks it can go about its business and do what it needs to do uh, without considering the classical tradition. Uh, that in itself, I think, is problematic. Um, well, that concludes the questions that we have. I, I would like to give either of you two an opportunity to give some final thoughts of the discussion or, or, or where you think this type of discussion needs to go in the future. And I'll, I'll start with you, Chris. Yeah, I, I really appreciate uh, Dr. Carter willing to be able to come on and discuss some of these things and to uh, do it in maybe a better format than social, you know, other routes to, through social media. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my biggest, uh, thing was that I had been listening to a lot of Dr. Carter's material and, uh, and, and just seeing what I thought were some inconsistencies uh, with my own approach and the approach of, of some others uh, to various questions of apologetics and whatnot. And so 
as I suspected, I think there's much more agreement between us on these things. Uh, not that it matters, I'm a nobody, but uh, there's much more agreement on these matters, I think, uh, than one might uh, suppose. Uh, but I wanted to to go down into some of the disagreements as well. And um, what struck me, I think, was uh, his very uh, Vossian approach to scripture and whatnot. And uh, I think that all of his material on that is great. And I was curious as to why that wasn't, it didn't seem to me, was not being extended beyond just special revelation to understanding uh, the book of nature as uh, subservient to Christ, not that he rejects that or anything, but, uh, but in terms of the way that we approach the apologetic endeavor and even uh, holistic Christian thinking, as I would call it. In fact, many of the things that this, oh boy, I can't bring this up right now, but many of the things that he was saying, particularly uh, in this last and final segment, um, are just the things that I would refer to as a Christian worldview. Now, there's a lot of pushback against that term, worldview, and I understand there are bad uh, and non-Christian understandings of what a worldview is. But I think in general, uh, as a network of presuppositions and beliefs, uh, what Dr. Carter presents as being the great tradition uh, stemming from uh, Christianity, but then working its way through and incorporating, as we've noted, some of these Greek terms and even some of the ways that we might be thinking about universals and things of that nature. Uh, I, I think that what he refers to as that would be simply what I might refer to as a Christian worldview. And I would say that those who reject such things, they, they wind up in futility of thought, uh, which I think is somewhat of a philosophical uh, explanation or demonstration of what we see explicitly declared in scripture um, that, you know, it, we do have this knowledge of God and, uh, and that matters. And rejecting that is what scripture would call foolishness. Hmm. Dr. Carter. Yeah, I, I really agree. Um, well, it, this has been interesting to me and uh, I really appreciate uh, hearing, uh, hearing you talk, Chris, about these issues and, uh, it is uh, it is heartening to see how much uh, agreement there really is, and um, I was influenced by Schaefer early on, uh, and uh, and and I think that he has. I, I was just reflecting recently, and I'm going to do do a Twitter thread about this. Um, I remember being in university and having the local ISCF IVCF group uh, show the, uh, the films "How Then Shall We Live," and it. I remember. Schaefer talking in those films about abortion and euthanasia and, and various things. And uh, I remember people saying, oh, this is extreme. This is never going to happen. He's being very pessimistic and, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, then you fast forward 30, 40 years and everything he said has come true and, and more that he couldn't even have imagined. And so uh, I, I, I found his, I find that very helpful. I do really think, I do really agree with you that the, that um, the main apologetic approach that I, that I, that I think is, is uh, powerful today is to, um, is to say that the postmodern skepticism and relativism that most people seem to presume that A, that sort of thing could never have built the culture that we have inherited and take for granted and it will not be able to sustain it. And so if, if 
if the West, and, I, and here's where I think Schaefer was functioning prophetically, he's basically saying, if the West turns its back on God, then um, the West will crumble. And Schultz Edison was as another person who prophetically said much the same thing. He, he, he was asked, uh, you know, to, to explain why did all the horrors of the gulag and the, and the, the hundred million deaths from communism in the 20th century, why did all these things happen? And, he, and his, at one point his answer was because men forgot God. And, um, you know, as profound as Schultz and Nitzen is, he, he felt that he could reduce it to that simple uh, a statement. And, and I think that in the end, that's what it comes down to, that a culture that, that turns its back on God, even if it's a powerful, rich, advanced culture, with many, many blessings that have been generated by this culture, by previous generations who did believe in God and therefore in science and philosophy and logic and reason and, and beauty and truth. Uh, even if a culture chooses to turn its back on God, it cannot keep all the fruits of believing in God. It will not stand. So um, if... That is, that is my basic approach to apologetics, and I suppose there's a lot of overlap with, with Schaefer and Van Til in that sense. Um, so it's been good to have this conversation and to be able to come to these kinds of agreements. Well, we thank you both for coming on today. This seems like an appropriate place to wrap up our conversation. So thank you, Dr. Carter, and thank you, Dr. Bolt. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. Listeners of the podcast, if you desire additional content, check out our extension ministry of the Covenant podcast, Covenant Confessions, at covenantconfessions.com. Covenant Confessions is a blog ministry, and the contributors desire to equip God's people with content that informs and encourages from a 1689 Baptist perspective. Check it out.